I'm cynical with a solution, you know, because at the end of the day, I might be cynical that there's no hope for the future, but people are still suffering in the here and now. And so as much as I may not have hope, I can't just like do nothing. We can't just do nothing. Hi, I'm Julia, host of The Every Lawyer. My guest today is a hero, literally. Florence Ashley received the CBA Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Community Hero Award in 2019 and has just published their first book, Banning Conversion Practices. In this podcast, they bear all. And this is where I'm revealing my, you know, the deep influence of, of civil law traditions that I had on me, but this idea of like people sleeping with their civil code <laughs> and, and the law being something that's accessible, the law being something that people can just pick up and read and understand without having to go through a million court proceedings in order to get finally get a few judgments that tell you how the hell this all works. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. First, we nerded out about the best legal databases out there. I'm sorry, who, who knows how to use Westlaw? Well, first of all, you need... <laughs> First of all, you need money to use Westlaw. And, First, and yeah, also, that's Westlaw, but, mm. but let, let me be let me be clear. I, I I say who knows how to use Westlaw because I stopped using Quicklaw. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so let let me not be taken for a Quicklaw lover. No, no, um, that's good. That's good. Yeah. The only one. The only one I actually like is Canly. Canly. I was about to say Canly, but Canly is quite 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 friendly. But yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it has its. It, it certainly is not as complete, no. but it's more than anything accessible and that's the thing that i value the most also it, it looks even pretty, the name yeah i mean uh, even though it is you know it's a yeah it's a more accessible. Uh, i mean <laughs> did, do you remember when they had catley no that i don't what you don't remember okay um i think you can still get it if you like catley? generate an error uh Canly error if you so if you find a way to uh generate an error page on canly you can still see it but um a random page and then just go to a random page add a few letters to okay. the url i just found it, it. i just have it yeah, yeah. i just yeah. <laughs> and then you have your oh wow error 404 this is so good and then you have the cat wow That's yeah good. so love it yeah so, <laughs> so you yeah. know and, and this is a great example of like and honestly i wish canly was more well known like mm-hmm. i wish like there's a couple people who know canly but honestly like imagine if like People were like taught how to use Canly in like high school. Yeah, I mean, and using law as a tool to empower yourself. Well, so the law is 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 like actually way too inaccessible for most of us. So what we use it for is to self advocate, right? Like anti discrimination suits. Like people don't sue. Like, have you seen the human rights tribunals? Like nobody goes through that. Like, like a couple go through that. I mean. I was like searching a couple of years ago and it was like, what, like 200 trans discrimination cases on Canley when we can like estimate probably like 20 to 30,000 cases of like serious discrimination against trans people per year in Canada, you know? So it's like, it's, it's a joke. But when you have the law, when you are able to print a judgment and bring it to the employer and tell him, hey, you're not allowed to do this. Well, Hopefully that will give the employer pause and perhaps back down. So like, that's certainly the hope and eh, it's not always going to work, but you know what? It's going to work more often than the number of times you're actually going to go to court. 
In this episode of The Every Lawyer, we gain insight into the drafting process behind BLC4, banning conversion therapies, in which Florence participated extensively. We learn why the hard work of litigation must be done and receive actionable guidance on working with clients who are survivors of conversion practices. I feel like lawyers, one thing that's important is kind of like decenter yourself and also realize that winning is not the end all be all. How you win is important. And you need to realize that, you know, securing the biggest sentence or whatever might not be what matters the most to you, your client. Uh, this isn't like, and, and similarly, especially in like civil lawsuits, like securing a big payout might, like your client might not care. They might, and it sure never hurts, but uh, like that might not be their goal. So really be attentive to what their goals are and take the lead from there and and see how you can do this in a way that really gives them the lead and makes them feel like they're in control and are empowered throughout the process. Because at the end of the day, this isn't about some abstract notion of punishment. This is about making the world a better place for survivors. And it's about helping them heal and backing them as a society. And we can't do that if lawyers are bringing the big ego to the courtroom and walking all over everybody, including survivors, you know? you know, if a survivor wants you to walk over all over other people, that's fine. Go ahead. Have fun. But uh, make sure that that's what they want first. You know, like, you know, sometimes you just need to. And I think, honestly, that's something that's needs to be done more in law in general. Like, stop assuming that you know what people want and need and stop centering yourself. You know, like... <clears throat> The legal system is extremely tough to navigate um, and it's costing people's livelihoods and at times lives. So the least we can do is decenter ourselves and truly bring the best for those people on their own terms. And that's an important thing. I think we all need to learn more from is to be there for people on their own terms, not on what we think they need. You know, the reality is if you have a survivor in a courtroom, um, pretty much guaranteed to have depression and anxiety at a minimum, probably CPTSD or PTSD, very, very high likelihood. And then the fairly decent likelihood that uh, also very high likelihood of, of a history of, uh, of substance use. Um, and then also quite high likelihood that, uh, they might, uh, if they, um, if they experienced it quite young, very high likelihood of, uh, of, um, having been diagnosed with, uh, BPD or, 
I mean, l slightly less likely uh, histrionic personality disorder, but but borderline personality disorder especially. And then the problem that happens is as soon as you have borderline personality disorder, courts stop listening, doctors stop listening, and the kind of deep and tragic irony here is that in, in a lot of cases you the bpd is because you went through conversion practices so it's not it doesn't undermine your credibility uh, it doesn't undermine your credibility because it's literally why you're there it's an it's a result of that very issue and uh so you know it's it's a tough it's really tough and like i don't like, I don't blame survivors for oftentimes not wanting to go through the court system. A lot of the time, what they want more is to talk about it and share their stories out there and then they get hit with a slap. So at the end of this podcast, I think you will agree that Florence is indeed cynical with the solution. When you have... A civil suit, survivors decide for themselves who they want to go after. So they're not going to go after the people they that they think are, you know, like them, that, that were manipulated. And um, do survivors always, are, are survivors always going to make the best choices? And well, probably not. Nobody does. But they're certainly going to make hella better choices than the cops. Uh And so that's that's one of the big concerns there. Uh, then I also have, you know, the concern about the fact that it's going to be really hard to prove it criminal law, right? Because this is based on intent and uh, like quite good luck getting to intent a lot of the time if the person decides not to testify and which they can just refuse to do because it's a criminal proceeding. Um, if it's a civil proceeding, You can force them or draw adverse inferences. Can't do that at criminal law. Uh, same thing with like, you know, little control over who you ask to come as witnesses. Uh, and considering that probably you're going to have to call survivors as witnesses to corroborate things. And well, that's an immensely re-traumatizing process. And again, Now it's in the hands of cops. Now it's in the hands of prosecutors. They're going to be making those judgment calls. And at the end of it, you're probably going to struggle to secure conviction because the burden of proof is proof beyond the reasonable doubt because it's criminal law. That's hard. Uh, <clears throat> so a civil suit is much more flexible in many ways that is much more empowering to survivors. Um, survivors are in control of the process to a certain degree. Uh, it's not perfect, but they at least get to decide, you know, what, you know, how much they expose themselves to being re-traumatized and they may get to make a lot of those important decisions. Um, because again, like that process, super re-traumatizing. And I mean, I hope that we're not going to get a situation where the crown decides to force a survivor to mm -hmm. testify as and, and like 
I sure hope so. But do I trust so? Absolutely not. Not at all. Zero. Uh, and so, yeah, um, the so you you this weird situation where the entire point of proceedings, because by the time a proceeding is happening, you haven't you fail to discourage a person, right? So, like that's already gone. This is not a deterrence issue anymore. This is, you know, a a healing. It's about healing and protection. Um, for something to be healing, it needs to. You need to feel empowered. If it's disempowering you, if it's re-traumatizing you, it's not going to help. And the criminal justice system is quite literally the most disempowering place you could possibly be. Um, which is not to say that the civil, you know, that that's the civil proceedings are particularly empowering, but they're still much, much, much less disempowering than, than the criminal justice system and for everybody involved. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite concerned about, um, how that's going to pan out. I think realistically, though, um, the law will just largely go unenforced. Um, and so we do really need to keep pushing for provincial laws and, and better things and, you know, funding for survivors yeah. and, um, and, you know, legal aid coverage for lawsuits and legal aid coverage for, you know, one, doing the, the suing, but also uh, defending uh, defending suits because uh, like as a survivor, not as a uh, provider of conversion practices, because you know what happens all the time is you speak out against the person who does conversion practices and then you get hit with a defamation suit. I've seen more like during, like during the lead up to this law, I've seen multiple people get cease and desist. Multiple survivors get cease and desist. Like many. Um it's not like the it's very uh, trigger happy bunch. I mean, one of my uh, co-authors on a paper we're doing a systematic review of uh, conversion practices prevalence. Mm-hmm. We published our um, we published our protocol. We're get, currently getting sued by Joseph Nicolosi Jr. in in the U.S. The no you know the who's who holds the trademark for reparative therapy uh, and whose father is like the single most famous conversion therapist in like the history of the US yeah um, we're talking really trigger happy people in terms of lawsuits do you have like example here of best practices uh, to ensure that survivors if uh, actually some cases go in front of judges because as you say it might happen actually there will be no enforcement of the law but if it happens um, yeah how do you think we can make sure that they feel safe, they feel empowered during this uh, very difficult process, that they feel respected? Um, do we have, I mean, I know it's a hard question, but do, do, do you have, yeah, some examples of... Um... Yeah, I mean, I think one of the best thing that... Um, I think one, like, one of the best thing that these laws do, it means that if you, like, go to court, you don't, like, actually have to prove that it's medical malpractice to engage in conversion practices, which I think is like quite a beneficial side of it because it does cut a very re-traumatizing part of the process. Um, 
in terms of best practices, like a lot of it is 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 best practices around trauma and around you know working with um, LGBTQ plus people and in terms of trans people, like pronouns, misgendering, and tropes and stereotypes are still like a huge issue, and especially for trans women being perceived as you know um, aggressive, unreliable. Um, is like a huge trope. And uh, when you're working with people who have trauma, then you have to expect trauma responses. You know, trauma responses are things that constantly get dismissed and used against survivors in the legal system. Were survivors like um, included in the drafting process? Were they, did they have a chance to have a voice? Um, do you know if uh, their views and their experience was, uh, was asked? Because, I mean, it's not only about criminalizing it. It's also about um, providing some education about that. Also making sure that they have uh, access, survivors have access to uh, holistic services, uh, including for mental health. Or, so were they, yeah, were they included? Do you know? Um, now we're, you know, throwing this back again to the feds and this time, maybe the feds are going to take it more seriously. Because, um, you know, it's the second, it's their second, well, I guess it's their third kick at the can. Um, well, let's set aside the counting of how many kicks at the can it was and, and focus on the fact that they get a kick at the can now. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so that's an opportunity to bring that perspective to... Um, with the government and my fear is going to be that again what they'll do is that they'll talk to a couple people not necessarily the people who have the creative ideas because the people who have the positions of power tend to be a little bit more set in their ways uh which is not to say they don't have good ideas but that the ideas are not necessarily going to be out there um in terms of originality and are not necessarily going to be very heterogeneous it's going to capture a relatively narrower scope of, of what the range of possibilities is. But if they don't do that, if they, you know, consult wide, there would be an opportunity to actually bring these broader perspectives to not only talk about, you know, feminist campaigners who have been doing this legal work around Davio for years, who, you know, brilliant thinkers, but, you know, what about talking to, you know, association for uh, that militate for the rights of people who use uh, who use drugs. Uh, what about talking to feminist association that represent women of color, represent Black women, that represent Indigenous women? What about you know, Indigenous and and Black organizations are fighting against over incarceration and you know, LGBT groups who are also oftentimes groups that um, disproportionately use drugs and look at, you know, all the brilliant people with very, very nuanced views that we have all around and are just like waiting to get asked. Uh, I mean, I'm saying waiting to get asked. We're all burnt out. But setting that aside, like, like there's a lot of, really brilliant people out there who never get asked by the government for shit because they're considered too quote-unquote radical but 
I mean, that's the radical, that, that radical people, that's the people we need right now. Um, and so that's the first angle, you know, at this stage, that's where we go. Um, and a more intermediate, like kind of moderate term, um, we need to like, you know, actually start taking intersectionality seriously in courts and move towards that through the hard work of doing litigation. And that's where I want, um, you know, organizations that do these lawsuits, you know, the the CCLA, the EGALs and the LEAFs of the world to actually take up intersectional cases and like deliberately intersectional cases and go to court and say, hey, this is not a single angle issue, but it's still an injustice and you need to do something about this. And we're going to, you know, stop picking cases that are going to be, you know, pre-digested for you. We're not, we're going to stop taking all the like easiest fact patterns where you don't have to engage with intersectionality and actually like deliberately bring you intersectional cases because that's what we need. Like, that's a sense that's the sensibility that we need in Canadian law because like that's always the issue with with impact litigation is that you pick the you know you pick the plaintiff that's gonna work out the best in terms of the outcome of this particular case which oftentimes is somebody that you you know think is gonna be the most you know politics or respectability gonna look the most respectable and gonna avoid complicating anything for the court that presents a very singular one strand narrative but the long-term cost of doing that is quite high because we're not building that capacity of the legal system to handle the more difficult issues and as we face one easier and easier issues because you know some of the uh, sorry as we face harder and harder issues because we've done some of the easier ones then we're kind of screwed but then also you know people who are pushing back against social justice are complexifying their narrative in a way that uh, means that even our what is considered to be a simple narrative is now being recast as a difficult one and we've seen that with uh the supreme court in the united states uh with the upcoming you know evisceration in fact straight up overturning of, of roe v wade and the fact that we have you know people like uh amy coney barrett that's importing this narrative of of you know there not being enough supply of kids for adoption um which of course means you know white kids who were separated like at birth because if you look at the uh, at the foster care system it's definitely not you know a, a lack of of kids in the foster system it's a lack of this like one very narrow narrow set of kids are considered desirable by these families um so there's that there's that and then you also have like Clarence Thomas who are framing um abortion as a form of eugenics and uh, and as anti-black because disproportionately abortions are sought out by uh, black women other women of color and 
And so they're they're reframing their own arguments in in these kind of like justice, like social justice terms, even though you won't find more conservative than Thomas on the court, well, alongside Alito. But, you know, so conservatives are finding ways to complexify the narrative. And now that we're, you know, decades and decades into our jurisprudence and I've developed it around easy cases, now faced with these cases, we don't necessarily know how to handle them and we don't know how to convince the courts um, that they should handle it our way. Florence continues to advocate for an intersectional approach and improve uptake of science by the court in their decision-making process and within the legal system generally. For more information, visit florenceashley.com and cba.org. Thanks for listening and look back here for new episodes of The Every Lawyer and Juriste Branché en français avec moi, Julia Petrobranché. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. We're working with the system not because we believe in the system, not because the system will liberate us or liberate anyone at all, but because the system is one of the ways in which we can create a small shelter of temporary reprieve from the rain for the people.